Well, children truly are precious, aren't they? We love the way that they laugh at just the smallest kind of things. We love the jokes that they play on us, right, and the cheeky grins that they seem to give us all the time, or the no-worries attitude that children have. I know that my daughter, she can fall over and graze her knees. She gets up and she's like, ah, don't worry about it. Life's too, you know, there's too much fun to have to worry too much. And so on they go. And so it's very easy for us to see children and to think of them as very special to us. And in fact, it would be quite difficult, I think, in our culture today, if we were to walk down the street, ask a random set of parents or even an uncle, auntie or whoever, and, and say, hey, do you think that children are precious and valuable? And I think all of them would basically respond with, absolutely, of course they are. We love children, we value our kids. And even people who don't have kids, I think much would be the same, that we all confess some sort of importance for children, some value that we have for them. And I think, you know, whether that's because we all have one time been children, and so we remember, we look back and we thought, hey, there's never a time where I thought that I was not important, and so of course children are important. Or whether it's because we think um, of the natural tendencies that we have toward them, that of nurture and protection and guidance and all these things, and we think if that's just a natural tendency that we have towards children, well then surely there's some, there's some value in them. There's importance about them and all these kinds of things. And I think in our Western culture today in particular, we've come quite far from let's say, the Roman Empire of the day, and we can look at plenty of things that we're doing that showcase what we think is the value that we have for children. Some examples are the, uh, the laws that are being regulated constantly to keep the safety of children at the forefront of our minds. We want to keep children safe. There's TV channels, whole TV channels that are dedicated to children. Then there's the weekly children events that we go to. We take our kids to them from farm animals to face painting. There's the shopping malls that we go to that are decked out with stores just for kids. And of course, you know, those little $2 rides that they go around on and who pays for those? It's... But we do it anyway because we love our kids. Then there's baby showers and there's birthday parties upon birthday parties upon birthday parties. Parents are spending hundreds of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars, I should say, on children's schooling, on their extracurricular activities, and all these sorts of things. And another thing is, kids are getting sent off today with uh, lunch boxes that are just packed with good stuff. I know that when I was a kid, I got a peanut butter sandwich and a pat on the head. Off you go, buddy. But now, like, kids are getting, like, all these sorts of snacks and yummy things and everything, and it's definitely not peanut butter. Because, again, we've got to look out for the safety of other kids. So we could go on. We could go on and on and on and think about all the ways in which in our culture, in our church, in our homes, we value children. And that's the ambience of the, of the day today, that children matter to us. Children matter to us. But the question I want to ask us this morning is, would Jesus Christ have the same conclusion? Would Jesus Christ have the same conclusion about whether or not children really matter to us? If he were to look at the school curriculums that we send our children off to learn, what would he think? Or if he were to look at the movies that we let our children watch, what would he think? If he were to look at our church and our children's ministry and the way in which we interact with children, what would he truly think about our value of children? Or even still, what if he were to walk into our homes 
And if he were to assess what dad is doing, where he's spending his time, whether or not he's training his children, or if he were to look at mum and how she's pouring herself out for the kids and why she's doing what she's doing, would he have the same conclusion that we have today that children matter to us? That's the question I want to ask, because as the church of Jesus Christ, it's the question we always want to ask. What does Jesus Christ truly think about what we are doing with our lives? By the time we get to our text here then, in, Math, in Mark chapter 10, verse 13 to 16, Jesus is now getting very close to Jerusalem. He's mentioned twice already that this is where he's going to suffer and die, be uh, handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and then rise again on the third day. He's just finished his teaching we heard last week on marriage and divorce. And now we read in verse 13, if you want to join with me in looking at the text, it says, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. It's no coincidence that as Jesus is teaching on the topic of marriage and divorce, that right afterwards we see that children are being brought to him for a blessing. Children, of course, being the ones to most benefit from marriage and children being the ones who are most affected by divorce. And now it's likely that both kinds, as, as the children are coming to Jesus, both kinds, children that are blessed in marriage and children who have been probably affected by divorce, they're all coming to Jesus to receive a blessing. And that's because in this culture, in this day and age, the Jews actually stood apart from their day. They had an importance upon children that was different to the rest of the world. And that's due to the fact that for hundreds of years, the Jews had been reciting scripture, reading scripture, or they had the synagogues that were a new thing. They were teaching their children verses after verses, getting them to memorize and all these kinds of things. And within scripture, we find plenty of places about the value of children. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7, the Lord God commands his people Israel, and he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And he goes on to say, And you shall teach these commandments that I give you today to your children. You shall talk about them when you sit down and when you rise up, when you're walking on the way or when you lie down in bed. At any time, at any place, teach your children the commandments of God. Furthermore, they would have this culture of psalm singing. They would go to the temple. There it was, Herod the Great's awesome temple. They would sing the songs of ascent as they walked up the mountain of Zion. The whole congregation, one of those songs, would have been something like Psalm 127 that says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. And the children would have heard that being sung in their presence. And then what's more, the bedtime stories for children wouldn't have been Winnie the Pooh or whatever. The bedtime stories would have been scripture. They would have been taught about Rachel and Leah and how Leah had seven children born to Jacob and what a blessing that she was. And then they would have heard about the cry of Rachel, about how she said to Jacob upon finding out that she was barren and couldn't have children, she said, give me children or I will die. Like they wanted to have children because they knew what a blessing they were and what the Lord God thought about them. So for the people of God, to have children was to have a blessing. 
But more than that, as we see in the text here, they didn't want to just have the blessing of children. They wanted their children to be blessed. And so you can imagine then as Jesus of Nazareth, the miracle worker, walks in to the town and all the parents hear about him, they're lining up for ages to get their children to this rabbi, this teacher who's going to bless them and impart some kind of um, praise or, or word over them that would benefit their lives. Now, when we contrast this to the surrounding Roman Empire, we might get a clearer glimpse then of what it's similar and like to our day. In the Roman Empire in the first century, a father had the legal right to kill his own son if he just displeased him enough. If the son just ticked him off too much, he could say, that's it, you're done. The Romans, of course, had a terrible practice which was common and legal in the empire of the day, which was to leave their unwanted children that had just been born out in the elements, they would leave them exposed to whatever, whether it was the cold that got them first or the feral dogs or whatever it was, they would not care and they would leave their children alone. We remember, of course, in the nativity, we're coming up to Christmas soon, in the nativity scene, Jesus Christ is born into Bethlehem and Herod the Great He's got a plan to wipe out or to find the child Jesus, and he doesn't care to take the uh, time to find out who it is. He just orders the slaughter of all the children of Bethlehem under two years old. Doesn't care. All of them, in the hopes that I might just get this one child. Children were only as valuable to the family as much as they could benefit the family. And that meant that children at young ages were forced into labor-intensive tasks so they could work back their value, get their value out of them as quickly as possible. And so compared to this evil society around them, the people of God could easily boast that we value children. We value children compared to those Romans. And this was the culture that Jesus' disciples would have had and that would have been in the backs of their minds. They would have thought all these things. And so if we were to ask them, they wouldn't hesitate at one moment to confess that children are a special blessing from the Lord and that we value them and that, of course, we appreciate children. But on this day, we see that their actions demonstrated what they truly believed about children. For the rest of verse 13 goes on to say that as the children were coming to receive the blessing from Jesus, that the disciples rebuked them. The disciples rebuked them. Our master is too busy for you. Jesus has been teaching all day. He's been handling the scribes and the Pharisees and these important arguments. Take your children and get out of here. He doesn't have time for them. No doubt the disciples would have thought they had done a good thing here because Jesus was, after all, in the, in the business of working wonders, wasn't he? Think of all the things Jesus did, how he fed the thousands how he cast out demons, how he healed the sick, he raised the dead, he did all these things and now some children are coming to him and the disciples are thinking there's no way that our master Jesus wants to spend his time cuddling little babies and imparting a blessing on them when there's all this other stuff, important stuff for him to get on with. And so the disciples, you can imagine, give each other a bit of a high five as they've just finished rebuking these parents. Off you go, take your stroller with you, get out of here. And, um, and then we read, however, in verse 14, Jesus' response. Have a look down. In verse 14, it says, 
But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. He was indignant. Jesus was not impressed. To be indignant means to feel or to show anger because of something unjust or unworthy. And the Greek word here is actually made up of two words, the words much and grieved. So Jesus is greatly grieved here at what he sees his disciples doing. He's angry. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus gets angry in the book of Mark, and it's not the last time that Jesus will get angry, but it's the first time and the only time that we read of him ever getting indignant. You will not read it again. Jesus was indignant at this action of the disciples. And that should make us pay attention. We should want to sit up and take notice because the things that you and I get angry over, the things that Jesus Christ gets angry over, tell us a lot about what we value and what we love. If we get angry when our toddlers are still not asleep by 9.30, well, that probably tells us something about that we love our sleep or our comfort or whatever it is more than the needs of the child. But if we get indignant over hearing, say, the latest child abuse scandal or something like that, that is a place to be indignant. That tells us something about what we value and what we care about. That's wrong. It's unjust. It's unworthy. We're indignant. And this is what Jesus is feeling here toward the disciples and their hindering of the children. Now, we're Christians, Christ ones. We want to follow Christ, don't we? We want to imitate him. And that means to love the things that he loves and to hate the things that he hates. And if there's something that stokes the fire of Jesus' indignation, it's when his very own disciples stop children from coming to him. And so the first thing that we learn from this text before Jesus even speaks a word is that Jesus loves children with a fiery love, with a holy love. He sees them as precious little children. See, the disciples, they had the ambience of their culture, didn't they? We valued children. It was humming in the background. And we certainly have that in the church today, don't we? We value children. We would say the same thing. The disciples could have looked at the world around them as well and said, well, at least we're not like those baby-killing pagans. Can we not say the same thing today as well? And yet still, when it came to making time in their busy schedule for children to encounter the Lord Jesus Christ, they would have none of it. They hindered the little children from coming to him. And this practical attitude, this action which demonstrated what they truly believed reveals something greater, a greater underlying problem that was in them and it's in all of our hearts. And that is a heart that at the core of it despises insignificance. At the core of our hearts, when we think of what we value, we despise the dependent people. We can despise the needy people. We can have a resentment of small people, insignificant people, insignificant things. We get caught up with our vision of what's grand and what's powerful, where the wealth is, where the influence is. This is the tendency of our heart to look towards those things. 
And so it's no wonder then when we see children who are the epitome of all of these things, dependency, neediness, downtrodden, they're low class, they don't have any reputation. When we see them and the epitome of what they are, well, then it's no wonder that we have this natural attitude of stopping the little children from coming to Jesus Christ. How disappointing that would have been for Christ to see his disciples, the men who had been been walking with him for three years now. They knew him best. They knew his teachings. They'd seen his miracles. They had got the inside information when he spoke parables. He explained it to them, not to other people. They were on the inn. They had had instruction. And yet it was these same men who stopped the little children from coming to Jesus. And I want to ask us this morning, can he still see the same thing in our hearts? Can he still see the same thing in our hearts? What would he conclude about our value of children? See, Jesus Christ is not so concerned about whether we have a bumping kids ministry or if children get the latest and greatest toys or if they're entertained or if they have the right clothing or whatever it is. And neither is he out to demonstrate that we ought to now focus on children as though they're the center of the universe because that's definitely not what I'm saying or what needs to happen. That's probably the reverse of what I'm saying because children, they already think that they are the center of the universe and they need to be trained out of that. What Jesus is concerned about, though, is the hearts of his people being transformed into his likeness. Are the disciples' hearts like mine? Are our hearts like Christ Jesus' heart? Our attitude towards children tells a bucket load about whether or not it is. For a, If a disciple cannot make time or find time or spend time or prepare time, whatever it is, for children, how can the love of God be in that person? Look at the way he treats children. See, for Jesus, children are precious, but they're precious for two reasons that we do not usually think about. And so he says in verse 14, I want you to look with me, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. This is a command of Jesus Christ to his church. And I want you to notice it's stated both positively and negatively. Positively, let the children come. Negatively, do not hinder them. But the reason he says this is spelled out afterwards. He says, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. The first reason that Jesus sees children as precious is because physically speaking, children can enter the kingdom of God. It's possible for a little child to enter the kingdom of God. And I don't think that we really believe this often. We look at their capacities We look at what they think is important and we look at their problems and they're all little. They're so small and insignificant. We think, well, if that's what they're dealing with, their problems are so small, how on earth are they ever going to understand the problem of their sin, their need for Christ and his glory and the kingdom to come and all these awesome things that God has in store for us? How are children going to comprehend these things? They can't and therefore, why should we bother? Teaching, instructing, praying, whatever it is. I think we often do not believe this statement that it's possible for children to enter the kingdom of God. But Jesus says it is. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. 
Kent Hughes, who is an American pastor, a very influential man over in the States, he tells a story about his wife when she was only in kindergarten. She was barefoot and running across this apartment um, complex and she ran into this uh, building where she'd been memorizing verses because um, adults had invested in her and taught her to memorize these verses. And what it was, it was a chain of the gospel. You know, I'm a sinner and I've been washed by the blood and I trust in Jesus and I have life everlasting. She was memorizing these verses and it just clicked for her one day because the teacher gave her this book that she would open and all it had was the colors of black to symbolize sin, red to symbolize the blood, white to symbolize the purity, the washing away of it all, and gold to symbolize the glory to come. And she understood it and she was saved in kindergarten. And She's been serving the Lord ever since. An American apologist by the name of James White, you may have heard him, he, uh, he travels around the world debating um, uh, usually people who believe in uh, Islam, but he debates all kinds of people, and he's he's solid teacher of the Bible. But he tells the story of when he was only five years old. He knew Christ, and he believed Christ, and the elders of his church all could see the fruit of, of his belief working out in his life at the age of five, and so they baptized him that year, five years old. We've got plenty of people perhaps in this congregation who can testify to the fact that there was never a day where you didn't know the love of Jesus Christ. You might not know the day when it all clicked, but you just know when you reflect, well, I can't think of a day. And that's probably because it happened so young that you came, you found entrance into the kingdom of God. Psalm chapter 8, verse 2 says this, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established praise. Psalm 22, 9 and 10 says, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Only a few weeks ago, we heard in Mark chapter 9, verse 42, that Jesus was speaking about these little ones who believe in me. It's possible, church, for little children to enter the kingdom of God. And we should not let our inability to understand how that happens or when it happens or the possibility of what God can do in the lives of children to ever stop us from letting little children come to Jesus Christ and enter the kingdom of God. Now, that said, we of course should never try and extract little bogus confessions of faith from children either to pressure them or manipulate them to say, pray this prayer after me and ta-da, you're in the kingdom. That's not what I'm saying. And we definitely should not do that. That would be a stumbling block to children. But the Holy Spirit of God, Jesus Christ describes him in John chapter 3 like the wind. The wind blows where it wills. We don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with those who are born of the Spirit. We do not know. But don't let that stop us from investing and letting the little children come to Jesus Christ. For I believe quite firmly that as parents and as a congregation with little children and with children in our lives, that we should be praying daily for the salvation of their souls and be expectant that Jesus Christ will answer that prayer. See, the exciting thing about children when they do come to know the love and the grace of Jesus Christ is this, that just like anyone else, they give their whole life to him. 
But the difference is a child has a whole lot more of life to give. D.L. Moody, another American evangelist, he once reported coming back from a meeting saying, um, I got two and a half conversions. And then his host said to him, oh, so two adults and one child? And he said, no, two children and one adult. Because, you know what he's saying? He said, well, the children gave their whole lives, but the adult only had half of his left to give. This is kingdom economics. Children are worth our investing in early. It will impact generations upon generations upon generations. So be encouraged, kids ministry workers, those of you who are still here and not out in kids ministry, keep at the work that you do. Keep at it. Be encouraged. Sow into the children. Sow into them with love and with genuine care for their lives. Share the gospel. Pray for them. It's an eternal work that we're doing and it will have impact for generations to come. Your early planting will mean a wonderful harvest for the Lord. What's more though is that in Jesus saying that children, children can enter into his kingdom, Jesus is also indicating that children can experience the spiritual life of a Christian. And what I mean by that is you and I in this room, we're adults and we, we, we know a lot of stuff. We've been taught a lot of things and we think that because we can understand the, the hypostatic union or whatever it is, we get complicated, that we must therefore have a better understanding of the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. And that's not so. Those who are least in the kingdom can experience all of these things and that is just the same for children. Charles Spurgeon he once said this in a sermon on little children. He said, I will say more broadly that I have more confidence in the spiritual life of children that I have received into this church than I have in the adults. I will go further and say that I have usually found a clearer knowledge of the gospel and a warmer love to Christ in the child converts than in the man converts. I will still astonish you even more by saying that sometimes I have met with a deeper spiritual experience in children of 10 and 12 than I have in persons of 50 and 60. Jesus Christ came to offer the kingdom of heaven. And praise God that even the smallest of children can not only enter the kingdom of heaven, but experience all the treasures and the pleasures of joy that Jesus has in store for us. We should not be astonished then when we find out on that great and last day that children of six and seven will be seated in higher places of glory than those of us who have not invested in the kingdom. I want us to notice, though, further, that in verse 14 it said, for to such, or in other translations it says, for to such as these belongs the kingdom of heaven. This is where we're going to transition now, make a movement. Because Jesus is alluding here in this verse to the fact that the possession of the kingdom of God is not only two children, it's broader than just mere physical children. However, it is limited to those who are like children. And he knows that that verse alone is not enough for us to understand what he's talking about. And so he explains it to them in the next verse. Verse 15, have a look with me. He says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not 
enter it. And this gives us the second reason why children are precious in the sight of Jesus. Firstly, it was because physically speaking, children can possess the kingdom of God. But secondly, it's because spiritually speaking, it is only children who will possess the kingdom of God. Jesus is making a very black and white statement here. If you will not receive the kingdom like a child, you shall not enter. If you will not, you shall not. But the question we need to ask is, what does it mean to be like a child? And what it cannot mean is some subjective sort of experience that some children have or that we think about children, like they're cute. It cannot mean those that are cute. It cannot mean those that are funny, those that joke around. It cannot mean those that are innocent. If you've ever met a two-year-old child, you know that's not the case. They're not innocent. So what is Jesus speaking about? What does it mean to be like a child? Well, what it must mean is some sort of objective quality, some kind of thing that any child in any culture at any time wherever they are, experience this same thing. And that quality is an utter dependence upon others for life. This is what it means to be like a child, to be totally dependent, to be needy, to be without hope apart from some intervention from a father, mother, or whoever it is that comes and gives them life. A child is born into this world completely helpless. They can do nothing to save their life. They can do nothing at all to help themselves. This is what it means to be like a child. And so it is for anyone who would want to enter the kingdom of heaven. If you're here today and you wonder if you can come to Jesus Christ, if you can have eternal life, all you need to do is become like a child. Be totally needy. See your utter dependence upon him. See your helpless estate. See that your sin has separated you from God and there's nothing you can do to get back into that relationship with him. You are totally and utterly dependent upon the work of Jesus Christ on the cross to forgive you your sin, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, to make you holy, to make you righteous in the sight of God and bring you into relationship with him. That is the gospel, and that is what it means to enter the kingdom of God like a child. I want to ask, is this how you've come to Christ? Is this how you've come to Christ? Think and reflect and look back on your week. Look at where you've put your trust. Look at where you have your faith in right now. Is it in your performance of your Christianity? Is it that you serve? Is it that whatever you do in the week, is there some ounce however small it is, is there some kind of ounce of self-reliance, some kind of thing that you're clinging on to where you're saying, I know that Jesus has bought me, but I also serve in this space, sing these songs, remember my oath as a child or whatever it was, and you add these little things. Children cannot add anything. They're totally dependent, totally dependent. Is Christ your all and your everything? There's an old song, a hymn that says, Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. This is the prayer of every soul who is like a child. And this is why in the sight of Jesus that children are so precious. They're a constant reminder for us as we see them running around, as we interact with them, of our helpless estate before a holy God. We need him.
We need him to save us and to take us home to himself. They're the model for how we relate to our Heavenly Father. So how do we pray? Our Father, who art in heaven. The kingdom of heaven is only to children. Only children can gain entry. That's what it says there in verse 15. But finally, then, I want us to look at verse 16. That after Jesus Christ has spoken all that he's needed to speak to his disciples, it says, And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Notice then that Jesus isn't rushing anything here. He's not doing anything in efficient ways. He's not saying, right, I gather in the corner and uh, I'll just do one big blessing. Out you go. No, he says holding them in his arms. He must have taken multiple and he blessed them and he laid his hands on them, plural. He's doing it one after one after one as parents come and they come and they come to him. He's not rushing anything. He cares for each individual child. And might I say, he cares for each and every individual one of you, you children of God. He knows you by name, counts the hairs on your head. He blesses his children. Now you might have noticed in my explanation going through the text that I did jump over one of the verses a bit quickly. What I want to do is to give us some application towards the end of this uh, sermon here. I want us to look back at verse 14, that positive and that negative commandment that Jesus gives, because this is the imperative of the text. This is the charge. This is the command. We ought always to look out for these sorts of things, to know what it is that we should then do. How is it then that we should live as followers of Jesus Christ? And so I thought I might give just a few practical things to help us as parents in particular who are in the trenches of raising children. This is for all of us, but for parents, we of course, we have children on the daily. So I'm going to give this mainly to you, but it applies to everyone. Because when we don't take positive action, like Jesus says, let the little children come, or when we do negative things, do not hinder them, well then we're violating this command of Jesus Christ. So here's just a few principles. The first one is that we are all imitators. All of us are imitators. Ephesians chapter, chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore as imitators of God, uh, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. See, children like to copy, but we do too. We, we mimic those around us. We always are copying and mimicking someone. But the main person that we mimic is the ones who we worship. Look at the world. If, if you were to find someone who uh, has, a, has an idol, they would worship that person and then they would try and copy them. If they're a singer or a football player, whatever, you worship them, you copy them. For us, we worship the one true God. So we imitate him. But our children are looking at us. They're looking at what we do. How does dad, how does mum serve this God that they say that they worship? We are the main representatives of Jesus Christ to our children. We should imitate him and then they imitate us. And this is so pertinent for us because what it means then is we cannot keep our faith in the public sphere because our children will notice. They will be the first people to notice. What is said in the home, the children speak out on the street. And so if you say that you believe Jesus Christ, you want to serve him and you want to do all these things for him and whatever, but at home your children see what you prioritize, whether it's the TV or your hobby or whatever it is, they're taking notice. So consider, 
what it means to be an imitator of God, to focus on him in your private life so that your children see it and mimic. The second thing is to sacrifice with an eye toward the joy that is to come. Hebrews 12, 2 says this, that it was for the joy that was set before Jesus that he endured the cross. This is the principle that Jesus gives us. He did it on the cross perfectly and for our sin, but we can mimic this. We imitate him. We imitate the things that we cannot actually do ourselves. And the thing that this speaks to is when children are very difficult, when we're in the trenches and the kids are just at our throats and they're complaining and they're whining and there's all these kinds of stuff, we need to remember the joy that is before us. And so we suffer, we endure the children for the sake of the joy that's ahead. And what I mean is this, as we sow into the lives of children early, we are expecting that one day there is a harvest to come, that they will grow up into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's where we're taking them. We want them to get there. And so we sow early, we suffer with the early things, and we don't put ourselves upon them as though, as though our schedule and our values are important. We want them to know that we value them and that they are one day going to grow up into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And so we suffer with them, keeping an eye on the harvest to come. The final thing that I want to give us is that in all things, we are to refer them back to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because we all, as parents, want our children to be saved, don't we? Who doesn't pray for their kids and want them to be saved? We pray daily for them to know Jesus and to love Jesus and to serve Jesus. And if it were up to us, would we not just decree their salvation? Would we just not say, by the authority invested in me as the parent, I decree my child as saved? We would do that if we had the power, but we don't. And what's more, life is way more complicated than just a simple trajectory of going up. We go down when suffering comes. A grandparent dies. A father contracts cancer. A child gets sick. They themselves are getting sick. Suffering hits, and suffering rocks the boat. Affliction rocks the boat of our lives. It knocks us around, and we need to think, how is this all playing together in the plan of God? How is this good? How can my child, suffering in bed, me being a helpless parent, how is this a good thing? So in our training of children, we must always be preparing them by looking to the cross of Jesus Christ for the suffering that is to come. It hits everyone. When we look at the cross, what do we see? We see that God Almighty sent his only son who lived the sinless life, the only one who ever did not deserve to be nailed to a cross. And yet God allowed it to happen. The worst atrocity of all humankind. God the Father allowed that to happen to his son. Why? To bring about the greatest good that the world has ever known. The salvation of all who would call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Point your children back to this. Point them back to it in your discipline of them. Don't let them think that they're atoning for their own sins when you discipline. In the obedience that you want to teach them, point them to Jesus' obedience to the Father when he went to the cross and said, not my will but yours be done. In humility, teach your children that you are not the grand hero of their story. 
that they can share their faults and that you share your faults and that Jesus is the one who has overcome. In your forgiveness, show them that you can only offer them forgiveness because you've been forgiven by your heavenly Father. And of course, in suffering and in pain, pray that they understand that if God allowed his only son to die, to bring about the greatest good that the world has ever seen, then whatever they are going through, we might not have the answers, but we're not their saviour. Point them to the cross of Jesus Christ and the Lord Almighty, who has all things in his hands, who works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Would you pray with me?